Breast cancer is unlike any other current solid tumor in that two molecular pathways have now been successfully targeted therapeutically, the estrogen receptor pathway and the HER2 pathway. About 1 in 10 patients have tumors that overexpress both pathways, and I met with Dr. Mark Pegram to learn more about the interaction inside the cell when this happens and the clinical implications. There is an inverse relationship between expression of the estrogen receptor and amplification of the HER2 gene. In other words, the higher the number of HER2 genes as a result of amplification, the lower the expression of the estrogen receptor. But despite the fact that the estrogen receptor is at a lower level, it's actually being activated aberrantly through this receptor crosstalk pathway between HER2 and estrogen receptor. So there's actually estrogen receptor-dependent gene expression in the absence of estrogen in these HER2-amplified cases. So it's a very special situation because of this relationship between HER2 and the estrogen receptor, and this crosstalk between HER2 and the estrogen receptor leads to relative resistance to endocrine therapy. And so that's always a concern when you're evaluating an early-stage breast cancer that's HER2 positive. Even if they express the estrogen receptor, they may be relatively less sensitive to estrogen receptor-directed therapies of any kind. So one way around this crosstalk conundrum would be to target both HER2 receptor and target the estrogen receptor, because by targeting both of the pathways, hopefully you could subvert this crosstalk mechanism and result in a greater therapeutic benefit. And so if you look at the adjuvant Herceptin studies across the board in subset analysis, there's as much benefit from adjuvant Herceptin in ER-positive patients as there is in ER-negative patients. And all the ER-positive patients on those trials, of course, did receive endocrine therapy in some form or another. If they were postmenopausal, then I'm sure during the era that those studies were conducted, many of them received AIs and the premenopausal patients received tamoxifen. But it didn't matter. In the subset analysis, ER-positive disease derives as much benefit from adjuvant Herceptin as ER-negative disease. So adjuvant Herceptin is a main consideration regardless of steroid hormone receptor expression. And, you know, these are largely cases sometimes in the elderly, for example, or in patients with no positive lymph nodes or a limited number of positive lymph nodes. These are patients where in the past maybe you would consider endocrine therapy alone without chemotherapy. But now that's maybe less of a consideration during the era of adjuvant Herceptin. I mean, really, adjuvant Herceptin is probably the mainstay of treatment in these patients. If you look at the hazard ratios... For the clinical benefit, Herceptin is more important, arguably, than chemotherapy is in adjuvant therapy of HER2-positive early-stage breast cancer. What do we know about trastuzumab and hormone therapy without chemotherapy? Well, there's interesting data that was just presented, and it's really the first randomized trial to test this receptor crosstalk hypothesis. This was a study... Only about 100 patients per arm, so a relatively modestly powered study. But it was first-line metastatic breast cancer patients, postmenopausal, that are ER positive and HER2 positive. And they were randomized to a Arimidex alone or a Arimidex plus Herceptin. And the study was a positive study. The Arimidex plus Herceptin was a superior regimen in these patients. With in terms high, of what, progression-free? Higher response rate, longer progression-free survival by about double there was no overall survival benefit, as I recall from that study, because of the small sample size, and about 70% of the patients on the Arimidex arm crossed over to Herceptin, so that would contaminate this overall survival analysis. But nevertheless, I mean, in terms of proof of concept, despite its small numbers, I mean, it was statistically significant. 
the challenge in the clinic, of course, is you know when you're considering endocrine therapy up front in a patient with metastatic disease, historically that was the only thing that we would treat them with. In which case, you know, you're talking about an oral regimen, but now you're considering an oral regimen plus Herceptin, which is committing the patient to an intravenous treatment, which is a little bit more problematic logistically. But nevertheless, in terms of proof of concept, I was very impressed by the data set. And it paves the way for future consideration of other HER2-targeted agents that may not be IV. For example, lapatinib by blocking HER2 kinase might be something to consider in combination with endocrine therapy. And as you know, there is a large randomized phase 3 trial ongoing with letrozole, looking at lapatinib and letrozole versus letrozole alone, similar to the study design of arimidex and Herceptin. Hopefully that will be positive and would offer an all-oral regimen for these metastatic cases. We're also seeing hormone therapy plus bevacizumab, the anti-VEGF agent. So I guess the whole issue of biologics and endocrine therapy is being explored. Absolutely. I think this is a critical area to look at in terms of clinical investigation is the concept of anti-angiogenic therapy along with endocrine therapy. That's one of the areas that has not yet been explored in large phase three trials, but now those studies are ongoing and will be very complementary, hopefully, to the taxane-based randomized trials of bevacizumab, which clearly shows an advantage with Avastin and Taxol. What about the use of endocrine therapy and trastuzumab without chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting? We don't really have any data on it. All the trials looked at chemo plus trastuzumab and then with hormones. What about skipping the chemo? You know, this is a really attractive concept just because the hazard ratios for all of the adjuvant Herceptin trials are around 0.5. All of them demonstrated about a 50% reduction in the odds of recurrence when Herceptin is used in the adjuvant setting above and beyond chemotherapy. So it seems to me very likely that even in the absence of chemotherapy, you'd probably still have a similar hazard ratio. So I would imagine that endocrine therapy plus Herceptin will be superior to endocrine therapy alone for somebody that's HER2 positive and, let's say, low risk otherwise. So it's a testable hypothesis. There are studies that are being planned to address this issue. There are difficult studies to execute, perhaps, because it may require large sample sizes and long follow-up in order to capture the data. But I think it really is an important issue, and it's a very practical issue in real terms, because now in the clinic we're discovering all these mammographically detected tumors that are sub-centimeter routinely, and yet we know if they're HER2 amplified, they don't behave the same as typical sub-centimeter tumors, perhaps. They may have a risk of recurrence that's still double-digit and could be halved, potentially, by adding in adjuvant Herceptin, even in the absence of chemotherapy. So I think it's a wonderful opportunity It's a research question that must be addressed, and I think future trials will get to the answers. And I guess it's really a vexing problem, because if you talk about giving hormonal therapy and trastuzumab, other than having to come in for the infusions, you know, pretty good quality of life. Now you throw on chemotherapy, maybe it's going to be a pretty marginal improvement. You've got a whole different situation. You're looking at a 75-, 80-year-old person whom you maybe don't want to give chemotherapy to. And I guess that's where this is going to be maybe utilized first. Absolutely. I see patients all the time who simply are not candidates for chemotherapy by virtue of their age, by virtue of the fact they have small, no negative tumors that just don't merit cytotoxic therapy, or perhaps they have other comorbid medical conditions that preclude them from considering chemotherapy. And in those patients, I think this would be a wonderful option to explore. 
Can you talk about what the effects of trastuzumab are, what the effects of lapatinib are, and then what's happening in terms of endocrine therapy inside the cell? Sure. I'd like to start by considering it from the point of view of endocrine therapy first and add HER2-directed therapies on top of that base. If you consider, there's the classical mechanism for activating the estrogen receptor where estrogen binds to the receptor and then that complex binds to estrogen response elements and turns on estrogen-dependent genes. That's the classical pathway. There's this mode of crosstalk where receptor tyrosine kinases like HER2 receptor can actually activate the estrogen receptor even in the absence of estrogen. So if you consider that situation, what you find in the laboratory is that in those situations of HER2-positive, ER-positive disease, they're resistant to endocrine therapy. In fact, tamoxifen can even behave as an agonist under that scenario. So tamoxifen may not be the ideal drug for this class of patients. On the other hand, if you consider aromatase inhibition, what are you doing there? Well, you're blocking the synthesis of estrogen by blocking aromatase in postmenopausal patients. But that still leaves this pathway between HER2 and ER unchecked. So that may not be an ideal strategy as endocrine therapy for HER2-positive disease either. And that would explain why the Arimidex plus Herceptin randomized trial was positive, because by blocking both, you get a superior result. So what would be ideal? Ideally, it would be good to get rid of the estrogen receptor so that it can't be activated by these HER2 signaling pathways or estrogen. And an ideal agent, at least from a theoretical point of view, would be fulvestrant or fazlodex because it's a selective estrogen receptor degrading agent. So as a result of this hypothesis, we now have a trial underway at UCLA on our network looking at fazlodex receptin, and I think that may be a very theoretically appealing way to go. And I have had some patients on that regimen before the trial opened at UCLA who were still on it, you know, many months later. So I have anecdotally observed activity of that combination in my own practice. What have we learned about the mechanism of how fulvestrant works? Chemically, it looks like estrogen. So what does it actually do once it gets inside the cell? Well, it binds to the estrogen receptor and alters the conformation of the receptor in such a way that it sets it up for ubiquitinization and degradation in the proteolysosome. So if you measure the estrogen receptor before and after exposure to fulvestrant, what you find is that it's gone after exposure to fulvestrant. The cell just degrades the receptor as a result of this altered conformation that's set up by binding of the pure anti-estrogen fulvestrant. It's funny, as you said that, I was just thinking about the idea of taking out the trash. Yeah, it's kind of like you know, uh, sort of emptying like, the recycle bin. <laughs> it takes the, the receptor, receptor and throws it in the trash can to be right. picked up and taken away. What is the mechanism of action of trastuzumab? What's the mechanism of action of lapatinib? And how does that sort of enter into? And I guess we should say that, you know, we talk about patients with ER positive, HER2 positive tumors. That's what, like 10% of all breast cancer? That's about right. About 50% of HER2 positive patients express estrogen receptor, which is significantly less than the, you know, two-thirds to 70% in HER2 negative breast cancer. So what does trastuzumab and lapatinib do? Well, that's still a very controversial question, especially in terms of trastuzumab. Herceptin for sure does block signaling through the HER2 receptor. HER2 signaling more rapid cell division, for example, but it also elicits a strong cell survival pathway through the PI3 kinase and AKT, which is a potent anti-apoptotic pathway. So by blocking both of those pathways with a specific antibody, that's probably the principal mode of action of Herceptin. What about lapatinib? Lapatinib binds to the ATP binding site of the business end of the HER2 molecule. 
And by blocking this ATP binding site, the kinase can't function. So by blocking this enzymatic function of HER2, you can also inhibit the same signaling pathways that Herceptin can inhibit. And frankly, in cell-based assays, lapatinib is more potent in blocking these pathways than is Herceptin, in fact. You get greater cell growth inhibition, at least in test tube models, with lapatinib than you do with Herceptin. So I think there are interesting differences between the two molecules. We've shown recently in a paper in cancer research that in some situations there may be non-cross-resistance between the two. In other words, we've selected lines for resistance to Herceptin in the laboratory, and they maintain their sensitivity to lapatinib, and that was actually the basis for the pivotal trial of lapatinib that was reported at ASCO last year, which took patients who had received prior anthracyclines, prior taxanes, and prior Herceptin, and randomized them to salvage chemotherapy alone with capecitabine, or the same chemotherapy plus lapatinib. And that was a positive phase three study. It stopped prematurely as a result of efficacy even. So very impressive results. And I understand that that data is being considered by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for hopefully fast-track approval of the agent in the coming months. Where do you see things heading in terms of the optimal way to control patients with HER2-positive tumors, trastuzumab, lapatinib, or both? This is the subject of ongoing trials that are about to start both in the metastatic and in the adjuvant setting. There will be phase three randomized studies comparing Herceptin alone to lapatinib alone to the combination. Remember, we had participated in a phase one dose escalation trial of the combination reported by Storniolo and colleagues at ASCO last year. And we found, interestingly, some nice anecdotal responses during the conduct of the phase one dose escalation. We saw six out of, I think, 27 responders, all six of whom had failed prior Herceptin treatment. And yet with a combination of Herceptin plus Lepatinib, they're getting objective responses. So it's a very interesting combination. We've shown that the combination is actually synergistic in cell-based systems. That's published in Cancer Research also in the same paper just a couple of months ago. There's strong scientific rationale in terms of the synergy between the combination to move forward in the clinic, and I'm optimistic that we'll get positive results. Interestingly, if you think about that capecitabine pivotal trial that I mentioned, Since all those patients had had prior Herceptin, and most of them had just finished Herceptin, it had to be in the last treatment regimen prior to study entry, most of those patients in that randomized trial actually probably had therapeutic levels of Herceptin on board when they were randomized to lapatinib. Interesting. Yeah. The other sort of molecular targeted therapy that's now been brought into breast cancer therapy, both in HER2 negative and maybe HER2 positive tumors, is bevacizumab or Avastin. Sure. Can you talk about what that agent is and what we know about it right now in breast cancer? Bevacizumab is a humanized monoclonal antibody. Actually, it's based on the same antibody backbone that the Herceptin molecule is. But instead of binding to HER2, it binds to the vascular endothelial growth factor, which is a potent stimulus for angiogenesis in solid tumors, breast cancer included. Kathy Miller, George Sledge, and colleagues from the ECOG conducted a randomized phase 3 trial of weekly paclitaxel with or without Avastin as first-line treatment for metastatic breast cancer. The majority of the patients in that trial were, in fact, HER2 negative. At any rate, the results of the trial, I think, speak for themselves. The hazard ratio for the Avastin arm was around about 0.5 or so, essentially a 50% reduction in the risk of progression in the patients that were randomized to Avastin. The p-values were highly, highly statistically significant. There was a trend towards an improved survival that has not yet reached statistical significance, but the number of events required for the final survival analysis are not yet available. So I think everyone's waiting for that data very anxiously. But 
the progression-free survival data are very impressive indeed. And in fact, if you just look at the sheer magnitude of the treatment effect, it was something like a six-month prolongation in time to progression, which is, you know, very clinically meaningful, especially for a drug like Avastin, which really has, you know, very few side effects. It has unique side effects, but in breast cancer, it really is quite tolerable with that particular combination. So I'm very optimistic about the FDA's consideration of that database. I understand they've requested more monitoring data from ECOG, and that's going to take some months to compile. But I have a strong sentiment that it's likely that the regulatory authorities will approve Avastin for metastatic breast cancer in the coming months. I know a lot of people are looking to see those data and the follow-up data in terms of the concept of then moving that into the adjuvant setting, specifically the NSABP, I think the BCRG. At this point, with the data that we have, are you optimistic that we're going to be able to move this into the adjuvant setting? The key question that comes to mind when you see a robust efficacy signal in metastatic breast cancer, as was seen in the E2100 Taxolivastin pivotal trial, The key question that comes to mind in terms of clinical translational research is, would it do even better for early-stage disease? So this is a critical question. The ECOG group has already done a pilot Avastin trial in combination with an anthracycline-based chemotherapy regimen just to look at safety issues to make sure it's safe to give Avastin with anthracyclines, and the results of that study are forthcoming. But I think there have been no serious issues with regard to considering adjuvant Avastin trials And so they are, in fact, planned by a joint collaboration between NSABP and the BCIRG. Moreover, in the HER2-positive patients, based on our Phase two data of Herceptin plus Avastin, plus the composite safety data on Avastin with anthracycline-based regimens, really we have no qualms about moving forward with a a Avastin-based adjuvant study for HER2-positive disease in combination with Herceptin. We certainly will look at the safety endpoints very, very critically particularly cardiac safety is one of our principal concerns in the HER2-positive group because we know that Herceptin can reduce ejection fractions. And there's some hint from even the package insert data on Avastin of anecdotal small percentage of patients who develop congestive heart failure in some of the other diseases that that drug has been used in. So we're going to have to look at that very, very closely indeed. So if you could wave a magic wand, would you start a trial looking at chemo, trastuzumab, Avastin now, or would you want to wait to see more data personally? Personally, I think we're ready to start. You know, there are two ways to approach it. One is to do a pilot phase two that's non-randomized in order to collect your safety data and then do a powered phase three randomized trial based upon that safety data. A more expeditious approach, however, in terms of getting the answer quickly so that if the drug is efficacious to get it to patients sooner would be to start a randomized phase three trial with an early stopping rule. And that's just in terms of time, it's much more efficient to get your data in quickly that way. If there is a positive efficacy signal, the drug will be approved that much faster and available for patients who need it. You mentioned that bevacizumab is, quote, anti-angiogenic therapy. We know it's, you know, against the BGF receptor, but there's been debate about actually how it's working. It seems like it works better when chemotherapy is on board. What are your thoughts right now about how it works? Well, there is this interesting hypothesis that has been advanced by Rakesh Jain and his colleagues at Harvard suggesting that maybe vascular normalization is one mode of action of Avastin. Remember that VEGF, when it was originally purified in the laboratory, was actually called the vascular permeability factor because it causes leakiness of the capillaries. And what this can lead to is an increase in interstitial fluid pressure inside growing solid tumors 
And this high pressure in the tumor may actually inhibit the delivery of therapeutic drugs like chemotherapy or other antibodies, for example. So one mechanism of action of Avastin, which has been proposed, is this vascular normalization where Avastin, by blocking VEGF, blocks this permeability and reduces the fluid pressure. In fact, in colorectal cancer, there's a nice paper by Willett and colleagues, again from the same group in Boston, looking at actual pressure measurements of rectal cancers before and after Avastin treatment, and the pressure goes down. There's also some preclinical data in xenografts looking at CPT-11 showing, or SN38 as whatever the model may be, showing that you can actually increase the delivery of that particular chemotherapeutic into xenografts with prior treatment with Avastin first. We've done some labeling studies with labeled Herceptin, and these are positron emission tomography labels, so we can do PET scanning and xenografts. And in at least some pilot studies, it looks like we may be seeing the same thing with Herceptin. If you pre-treat xenografts with Avastin first, you may actually be able to facilitate the delivery of Herceptin into the tumor microenvironment. But it takes several days for this effect to emerge. And, you know, how important that is for the overall mechanism of action of Avastin, I think, is still very, very controversial. I'm not ready to say that this is the mechanism. But it's a very interesting concept, and it certainly merits further exploration in the laboratory. Getting back to bevacizumab, the exciting results came out with ataxane, specifically paclitaxel. There were some previous data looking at capecitabine also, which perhaps wasn't as exciting, although it was used in later line situations. But in general, the concept of ataxane and bevacizumab seems to be gathering a lot of excitement. You mentioned maybe looking at triple negative tumors. What about the choice of taxane to combine with bevacizumab? The data came out with paclitaxel. Where are we in terms of docetaxel and nabpaclitaxel with bevacizumab? The RIBBON-1 trial is the follow-on study to the UCLA taxotere Avastin trial, which we just completed enrollment to with 76 patients accrued. So at our site, we're opening this RIBBON-1 trial, which has a menu of chemotherapy options, including taxanes, docetaxel, I believe abraxane is one of the options that clinicians can choose, and then patients are randomized to Avastin or not. There's also some non-taxane arms with anthracycline-based chemotherapy regimens on this menu of options as well for that particular study. There's also a study of Avastin in the second line called RIBBON-2, which is a similar trial design, again, with a menu of chemotherapy options with or without bevacizumab as second-line treatment for metastatic breast cancer. So between those two trials, I think we'll start to have a pretty strong picture of the activity of the drug with various chemotherapy combinations of interest for the disease. What did you see with your docetaxel bevacizumab study? Uh, the data haven't been analyzed yet. We just completed accrual. The study has just closed, and the data are being monitored and compiled as we speak. Hopefully, we'll have sufficient data available for an abstract at ASCO. Where do you think things are heading in general in breast cancer in terms of choice of taxane? You know, Braxane, we have this issue of the infusion time is shorter and the lack of need for pre-medications. Where do you think we're going to be two, three, four years from now in terms of taxanes, and where do you think NAB's going to fit in? It's hard to predict. Certainly the data from the ABI 007 Abraxane were fairly impressive, although it is at a higher dose than paclitaxel. But the lack of a need for steroids in selected patients is a very attractive option, as is the shortened infusion time. But it is, you know, it's a much more expensive drug. And I think that has led to some resistance of uptake in the community at large because generic taxol is just probably a lot easier to prescribe logistically in terms of just day-to-day operations in a clinic that has to worry about the finances. 
So I think that's one barrier. And then also the barrier I see is just the limitation to paclitaxel in that technology. Currently, I would like to see this albumin formulation extended to other cytotoxics perhaps because it does have some interesting potential mechanisms of action that might offer an advantage over free drugs. Specifically, we know that albumin is concentrated in solid tumor deposits, perhaps because of expression of proteins like SPARC and also because of transit pathways involving cavilin 1 across endothelial cells and even tumor cells. So this may actually facilitate the delivery of these albumin formulations into the tumor microenvironment, which would be you know, a very attractive option for a number of different cytotoxics above and beyond paclitaxel. Just sort of sticking with the clinical choice involved here, I was doing an interview for this program a few days ago, and a person said, if the costs were the same, I would not be using paclitaxel at all. Agreed? Sure. I would tend to agree because steroid side effects are really pretty uncomfortable. Insomnia, weight gain, it is pretty distressing. Hypertension, sure, if you could get around those side effects, then it would be a wonderful alternative. The one study that I found quite impressive with the Braxane is actually the weekly schedule. And I have used that in my own practice on several occasions, and I do find that it's an active regimen, and it's very, very well tolerated. And the fact that you can give it without steroid is very appealing indeed. Pilot studies have been done with this weekly schedule, even in patients who have failed prior docetaxel or free paclitaxel, and it has activity even in those subjects. So it's a very interesting regimen and particularly well tolerated. It's a shame that we have to take cost and finances into consideration But to me, it seems like in terms of quality of life and how people feel that it's not insignificant. Perhaps, you know, we should invest some effort into looking at quality of life. I don't know how good the quality of life instruments are in breast cancer in terms of looking at steroid side effects, for instance. If those are captured in those databases, I'd sure like to see that kind of data comparing, you know, paclitaxel to Abraxin. And I would imagine if you ask questions directed at steroid-like side effects, you would see marked improvements in quality of life without steroids. 